Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of our festival series podcast for BF Day 2-3. I'm your host Dan Fuller and I'm joined again by my good friends Dr Somer and Mr Samuel Fisher. Welcome both. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, today we have another fantastic episode lined up featuring Octavia Bright, Rebecca Mae Johnson and hosted by the fantastic Peter Scarpello. Yeah, this uh, panel was a dream come true. Um, not only getting uh, Peter to host it, who is not only a poet, but also a therapist, someone who's thought very deeply about writing the self, writing intellectually about feelings. Um, and it is a brilliant listener, but having two debut memoirist nonfiction writers Octavia Bright and Rebecca Mae Johnson, or I say non-memoir or anti-memoir writers because both of their books are very philosophical, very sensual, very embodied and very funny. Um, Octavia's This Ragged Grace and Rebecca's Small Fires. I'm not going to say too much about them because you'll hear from the writers themselves during the panel, but just to say thank you to publishers Cypher, Canongate and Pushkin, all of whom are pushing the boat as independent publishers and we love working with them and thank you to the fantastic St Peter's Church to Beauvoir Square you'll be able to hear the incredible warm hush of late afternoon in September that was the most unbelievably like Vermeer-esque light that was lighting up our gorgeous audience as this panel unfolded it was a real tea time treat so I hope you've got your cup of coffee You've got a biscuit or a piece of cake uh, to enjoy because this is a real, really is a panel about appetites and um, being close to the body. Um, and yeah, thank you for, to St. Peter's for letting us have such a radical uh, event in their church. And thank you to Arts Council England for making it possible and to the amazing Bertie Fisher team who were taking tickets and selling books and keeping our amazing guest speakers happy and well fed as well and thank you as ever to say for the alchemy uh of bringing these people together um which was an evidence throughout the festival um yeah thank you so <laughs> thank you so and over to the panelists Understanding your relation to the world, to the other, 
and the idea of consumption and experience of loving. And Octavia, in this ragged grace, you interrogate notions of recovery and the contradictions, limitations and freedoms of your experience in recovery from alcoholism and in parallel to your father's deterioration of health due to Alzheimer's. I was wondering if you'd like to start, Octavia, which is given us a short reading from your book. Take a taste of the biscuits in our teacher. Pay attention to the texture and the flavour. I bit off a modest corner, enjoyed the crunch, then crumble of sweet and salty matter. Felt a tiny rush as the sugar melted on my tongue. Worked out said, more. More was what I wanted. I looked around at my fellow meditators and saw them all restrained and thoughtful, nibbling delicately, eyes closed, brows furrowed into tiny erudite frowns, as though tasting a fine wine. A fine wine. They were absorbed in the moment, entirely consumed with biscuit tasting, which was the point of the exercise, presence through sensation. But Wormtongue and I were already lost to our craving for more. Furtive, I took another bite. I waited for an exquisite pleasure to invade my senses, like fruits from his interminable magnum. I found nothing but irritation. It appeared like a pressure behind the eyes, ran down my neck, arms, fingers, churned in my stomach. More. The disease of more, I'd heard it called, and knew that I had it. I wanted to be transported by the poetry of the custard cream to some higher plane of feeling, and felt impatient for my own involuntary memory to strike and elevate me. My love of biscuits came from my father, who once worked for a biscuit company, which meant in my childhood the house had been full of biscuits. My uncle even had two ginger tomcats called the ginger biscuits, there must be hundreds of dormant biscuit-related memories waiting to be triggered by the scent and flavour. But craving blots everything else out. Nothing makes me feel so mortal as the feeling of more. Powerless, I put the rest of the biscuit in my mouth. I should say as well, Octavia, I didn't introduce you. Um, Octavia Bright is a writer and broadcaster from London and the co-host of the podcast Literary Friction. Uh, and on that note, I will move on to you, Rebecca, and I will introduce you. Rebecca May Johnson has published essays, reviews, and non-fiction with Granta, Times Literary Supplement, and Dog Books Publishing, among others, and is an editor at the trailblazing food publication, Vittles. Small Fires is her first book. The recipe is a text that can produce spattering because it was spattering before it was language. Language is only a holding pattern for the recipe, not its origin nor its terminus. Spattering is not mentioned in a recipe. The text does not anticipate the liveliness of the process it describes, which spatters wildly. The substance in the pan trespasses beyond its linguistic boundary, making marks or mark-making on my shirt, the wall, the dry surface of whatever book is close by. There is always more. There is more than has been recorded in the text and there will be more again. Things will be hotter and redder. There will be spattering. In some ways, the recipe text gives me no clue about what is to come. This is hard to forgive. But after cooking it a thousand times, recipe turns out to be good enough. It holds me and survives my many attempts to destroy it. 
The second, third, and fourth time I make the recipe, I follow the instructions as precisely as I can, reverent and still wonderstruck by the transformation of matter in which I am a participant. My body is changed by the recipe. After tasting it, I see flavour differently, which means I see things differently. Because flavour is a quality of things, or can be, and it's not seeing, it's tasting, but it's a tasting that inaugurates a different relationship to things, a new method of perceiving. It is not only the surface I'm looking at. I'm learning to see into things, seeking the dimension of being that is flavour. There are so many possibilities. Each time I encounter the same thing, the same ingredient, I find that it's different again. Again, it's different. So the recipe is always a method for seeking. Turn the heat down very low. Thank you both so much for reading. Something that I admired so much in both of your books is the sense of place and of context in self-making. And there's something about relocation, about the self in a specific context, be it the kitchen, be it New York specifically, you know, there's, there's a remaking, an opportunity to reinvent and to discover oneself through occupation. And in both of your books there's this kind of common theme of care. There's cooking as an act of care to oneself and to others, and the act of caring for your father, Octavia, and caring for yourself in a process of recovery. I'm wondering if can both speak a little bit about the relevance of place and context in self-making and how you wanted to articulate that in your narratives um, and the narratives that you've made from these experiences too. Yeah, place is very important, partly because I was on the run, generally, in the first seven, and the, the book is structured around the first seven years of recovery. Um, each chapter pertains to, to the next year, and it's not the whole year every time. I was zooming in on specific experiences that felt relevant, but that were also like a way of um, making ideas embodied because as you sort of tease Pizza, like it's memoir, but it's memoir is such an open category, I think. And I think of it more as a book of ideas explored through lived experience, I guess. That's kind of how I, I think about the term. Um, and in those seven years, I moved around a lot because I was restless. And every time I went to a place, I was looking for it to give me something which is a classic addict way of relating to the world, but I also think it's a human way of relating to the world. Um, and that's the tricky thing with recovering from addiction because there's a lot about the addict self that is also just the human self and you have to figure out which bits you want to recover from or if it will kind of exist in relation to in, in a more distant way which you want to kind of hold on to. But um, I wanted to write about that place in the body because I'd been working on a PhD and it had been very much ideas separate from the body and kind of you don't exist below the neck and I, I needed to bring it back into the body but also addiction for me was a very a very bodily experience in that it was about leaving the body behind and seeking ways to locate the body and craving the reason I chose that, that reading partly because I think it speaks so nicely to Rebecca's work but also because you know there's one way of writing that alcohol addiction that's writing about the craving for, for a drink, which can be useful but doesn't really interest me very much because I found the process of being addicted to alcohol intensely boring. It's a closed circuit and uh, it, it doesn't deliver you anything ultimately. 
Whereas something like food, which you can use in an addictive way, you can use to numb yourself completely, like the, the bit with the custard cream. I wasn't tasting the custard cream. I was inhaling the custard cream in order to placate a feeling. Whereas I think you know your work is so much about like the sensual potential of, of food and the passage you read about the fact that it can take us somewhere else. And I think that's quite an interesting tension. Um, and, and similarly with place, you know, the, the different places in the book, each one draws out a slightly different angle in the process of recovery. Um, and the New York chapter, which you mentioned, is very early, so I was a year sober when I went there, and I was manic. And New York is a great city to get high on, right? There's so much going on, all the sights and sounds and everything. Um, but again, you know, the question of whether you're able to actually taste it, like whether you're able to actually receive something, when what you're seeking from it is, is actually self-abandonment, is something that I wanted to explore in the book, yeah. That's very interesting, because you're recognizing the, the potentials of the body to feel and experience sensation and internalize that experience as a kind of a self-making endeavor, and yet, at the same time, you are detaching yourself from your senses deliberately, um, be it through alcohol, be it through relocation, and that kind of the, the cliche almost of you know you take yourself with you wherever you go, you know it's the new location, but you're yes. still it's still <laughs> you, right? You know you can you can uh, yeah, and 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 while the context of self is so relevant to to setting. Here you are still, you know, you're, you, you bring all that with you um, and you move on and move on and move on. Um, Rebecca, I'm wondering if you have any reflections on that. Yeah, um, so similarly, I, I moved around a lot. I think I moved house about 12 times in 10 years or something. Um, this, you know, London rental market and then studying in a few different places. Um, and the kitchen was the a ship or I don't know what, I mean I use lots of Odyssey metaphors in the book because I did a PhD about a contemporary rewriting of the Odyssey by a German poet, which is partly where the epic comes from um, in the book. But um, the kitchen was a space in which I navigated relationships with other people and I used the recipe as a tool for kind of approaching but also in a way keeping distance between myself and other people. Um, because if you're feeling anxious about talking to people, you can just cook for them, uh, stop up their mouth. <laughs> no, <laughs> but um, not, no, I don't, not yet. But you know, you can cook instead of speaking. Um, but it's an interestingly, uh, you, you take yourself everywhere, but cooking for people in all these different kitchens as a way of uh, negotiating a relationship with the other was also uh, a vitally and interestingly sort of decentering experience for the self because if you really want to give other people pleasure through food, you have to pay it, you have to listen to them, you have to reorient yourself around their appetites because your projection of what you think is good food doesn't necessarily correspond with what they think is good food. And everyone has totally different relationships with food, um, some very complicated. And so I feel, yeah, um, the kitchen was a constant, but it was a space for learning about difference through 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 appetite um, of other people. Um, and I suppose it was a yeah, partly a self-making, but it was also a, a, a self-unmaking. Um, coming to, I grew up in a rural area in a very isolated house, and 
then living with lots of different people, you know, I might think, oh, I know what's the best thing to do. But uh, then finding out that you don't and that you need to to listen and be with others is was such a significant aspect for me of being in the kitchen. Um, and you talked about place and space as well, and I think um, a significant aspect of the book, um, in a sort of different way and related to Octavia, is the merging of the of the academic and the non-academic space, uh, the kitchen and the library. And as I mentioned, I did, I did a PhD. Um, it's a, it's a text called Niemandsfrau, which means sorry, about a text called Niemandsfrau, which means nobody's wife or nobody's woman, um, by the poet Barbara Curler, uh, who sadly died two years ago. Um, but her rewriting of the Odyssey centres on domestic labour of weaving, or Penelope's gendered labour of weaving in ancient Greece. And she sort of tries to rehabilitate 3,000 years of history as a kind of, she tries to move away from kind of patrilinear history and the single kind of, as she sees it, man-to-man, -man kind of great man theory of history or whatever, to a sort of more of a polyphony and sort of bringing uh, queer and feminine and monstrous and uh, animal voices uh, to the fore. Um, which, and this is, comes a form of thinking that comes out of the material process of weaving. So the principle for the form of thought and, and reconstructing history comes from the physical act of, of weaving and, and, and the physicality of weaving. Anyway, when I was not doing so great in my PhD and was doing a lot of cooking, um, I was nonetheless influenced by that work in thinking, well, what kind of thinking is cooking? What kind of, you know, forms of, I mean, Pe Penelope sort of reconceptualizes time in a way through the through the unweaving and reweaving that she does, um, which stretches time out, a task out over many years that those who can't weave don't understand because they don't know how to weave. And so, what kind of temporality might we imagine through cooking? Um, so then, in that sense, go, going back to place, um, the kitchen became a space of thinking and experimentation um, for me. Um, over that period of time as well, yeah. It's so fascinating, and I love the inclusion of that reference to Penelope and the weaving. There's a real parallel there to cooking and the, the yeah. process of cooking and the temporality of that as well. Um, the unweaving that she does to prolong time. Yeah. Um, I can really see the, the parallel there. And the constancy of the kitchen. You, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you moved around a lot, but there was always the kitchen. There was always a space that was familiar. Um, and kind of an extension of that, I suppose, what you, what you mentioned there is gender, womanhood. And you both write a lot about, about womanhood, about the women as a body in society, um, about the roles prescribed to women and the relation to one's inner being of, of self. You, you write about the housewoman, for example, Octavia. Um, as well as making links from womanhood to production, consumption, what is expected, um, the consumption of food, of care, of research as well, um, as well as this gendered idea of restraint and self-control as well, which I found an interesting parallel in both of your texts with regards to food and alcohol or um, other ways of being essentially. I wonder how these concepts of womanhood informed your experiences in terms of what you're writing about in the books, but also the, the, 
itself as a as a feminist text. Do you have thoughts on? I do. <laughs> um, I mean, I was very hesitant to write about recovery because um, the female body as a site of degradation is such a kind of long-established trope and um, one that I feel complicatedly about. And I think that, that women writers, particularly young women writers, and I wasn't enormously young when I wrote this book, but um, I was young when I got sober, and um, there can be, there, there's an appetite for young women making a mess, right? And making a mess publicly and talking about things that, um, you know, mess, making a mess of their bodies, making a mess of their, themselves. And that's one way of writing about recovery, which includes a lot of that and a lot of those stories. And there's some absolutely phenomenal writing out there that dwells very much in kind of chaos. And I didn't want to contribute more to that space because I felt like it was very well trodden. And I also honestly didn't think I had the metal for it. And I think that's something it's important to consider as a writer. You think about what you put out there and what you stand beside and what you what you want to speak to. And um, you know, when I was newly sober, I was still very attached to the chaos. And so when I read books that were about the chaos, it was it was kind of reanimating the part of me that wanted to get messy again. Um, and I hadn't found much out there that, that kind of I don't know, traced the shape of the life in recovery and what it might look like, which is what I wanted to do. However, when you write about recovery, you need to give your readers a little bit of an insight into what you need to recover from, otherwise it's not a good narrative, right? And that's an interesting split that happens, I think, with the memoirs, where you tell the truth and you write about your life, you also are a writer constructing a story and it needs to have value and interest. Um, but I thought about that very much politically and very much through the kind of lens of, of, of the, the female body and the female text. Also, um, I think, you know, there's a strand in, in this book that is, it is asking questions of commodification and the commodity of the story and what we do when we put our lives into the commodity of the book and it becomes part of the, um, of the market. And, um, and also because addiction is a, an experience of being enthralled to a commodity. <laughs> and I've, I've thought a lot about um, consumption in that respect as well, the kinds of consumption that come from a, a, an appetite that's um, genuine and the kinds of consumption that come from an appetite that is directed by forces outside of you, like the force of capitalism, for example, the idea that you can buy a new pair of shoes and feel better. I mean, I did buy a new pair of shoes and they're great and I did make me feel better, but you have to think about it, you know? Um, but um, I think also when I was writing about my father's illness, which which kind of came, came about because as I started putting the book together, I was thinking this question of recovery and I was thinking about how to shape it. I was sort of realizing that my recovery was underpinned by, by my father's unraveling. And, you know, there I was recovering from, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I, as an addict, I never recovered, but I'm in recovery. It's, it's an ongoing project for the rest of my life. And my father had Alzheimer's, which is an illness you can't recover from at all. So we were in this kind of double helix, I guess, of moving in different directions. And of course, when you write about care, and in my family, in a traditional sense, the care of my father fell to the women in the family. And it is women's work, and it shouldn't be women's work. And you know, I'm madly for the podcast waving my fingers around. But um, I thought a lot about that as well, the care between bodies and the relation of care between bodies. But what you were saying about constraints, I actually just would love to read the epigraph to this book because I also think it speaks to your work, Rebecca, um, which is from Louise Bourgeois, who um, 
I'm sure you will know as an artist, um, but the, the figure of the spiral became really central to writing um, this story. Partly because Dad and I were, one was winding in while the other was winding out, there was an unraveling and there was a tightening, but also because her thoughts about the spiral kind of um, turned what you might think about spiraling on its head, and this question of kind of restraint and constraint comes up in it, because, you know, when someone is um, addicted or acting out, we talk about the spiraling out of control, and the idea is that the spiraling out is the, is the chaotic direction, but Borja actually thinks about it differently. Um, so she says, the spiral is an attempt at controlling the chaos. It has two directions. Where do you place yourself? At the periphery or at the vortex? Beginning at the outside is the fear of losing control. The winding in is a tightening, a retreating, a compacting to the point of disappearance. Beginning at the center is affirmation. The move, move outward is a representation of giving, of giving up control, of trust, positive energy, of life itself. And I think that that also speaks a lot to the kind of role of parents. When you're in a parent role with somebody else, when they become completely dependent on you, you do find yourself in a position of control that is uncomfortable. And it can feel very instinctive to sort of tighten that control on a body that is failing, on a mind that is failing, out of fear and anxiety. And the same can be said for, for yourself in a project of recovery. You know, you can become very nervous of things. And actually reconfiguring and spiraling outwards as, as letting go in order to let in other things that are not harmful was, was very, very important. And I think, you know, I, I feel like that speaks to some of the stuff you're writing about too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I need to think about that. <laughs> I love that image of the, the spiral, the outward spiral, the inward spiral. It really challenges that the trope of trajectory, whether it be you know, recovery is linear or um, the generation is, is being a kind of linear process that then creates these parables, like you mentioned, in terms of caring for and relating to. Um, it's such a fascinating parallel to, to put alongside your own experience personally with your father's um, and Louise Bourgeois, obviously. A reference that you, you include throughout the book. Mm. And also, she was, oh, oh, she wrote, she made work about weaving, and yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were doing your reading. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in your, there's a lot to address. There's a lot there, yeah, we can, we can go specifically around, around womanhood, femininity. Yeah, so I guess I'll talk about gender, but then I've got lots of thoughts about constraint as well, and also mm. the, um, you just mentioned about uh, letting things in. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, obviously the kitchen is a heavily loaded space regarding gender, sort of strangulated by cliché in so many ways. Um, so at, at the beginning of the book it felt important for me, before just writing about cooking without having dismantled those things, it felt important to dismantle some of those things at the beginning of the book. Um, so with regards to embodiment and gender, I use the apron as a tool for thinking about that and I write about how we wear an apron and wearing unisex or masculine clothes with an apron over the top and the kind of the pleasure of apron strings and the kind of centering in the body that and oh yeah I guess it's quite kinky uh, talking about physical constraint and the dig of strings into the body as a way of centering in their body um, because I wanted to really think about I really wanted to make people feel that they could be 
well, I, I wanted to write about my own sense that it was important to be embodied in a way that felt true to me at the beginning of the book. When, when you tell people that you're writing a book about food, often their mind goes to certain places very quickly. And it, yeah, it felt important for me to take control of that narrative. Yeah. Um, and then, then there's the hell of gendered labour. <laughs> um, so um, that was important for me to address as well. Um, so I engage with the work of, of Silvia Federici, among others. I look at sort of also Martha Rosler, the artist Martha, Martha Rosler and her uh, film, The Semiotics of the Kitchen, to think about ways it's been really important to reject things such as the performance of gladness or happiness. Also drawing on the work of um, Sarah Ahmed. Um, yeah. Um, so it was like, it felt like, and I, and I try to, I do it in a playful and, yeah, a playful way. I'm not sort of berating everyone, but it just felt important to, to go through those things at the beginning and to make way for other more open forms of thinking in the kitchen, which, you know, the force of domestication and the position of, 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 of gendered labour in capitalism shuts down thinking in many ways, or makes it hard to think critically or even to really see what's happening at all. And that's where, like in the reading that I did, using the framework of performance, and actually that came from a conference, a, a conference at the Royal College of Art um, about writing and performance, and I took the opportunity to do something a bit differently, having come from a German studies background, um, to, to write about cooking through the lens of performance and thinking about the recipe text as a performance text, which then allows the, the sense of each cook, time you cook as, as a sort of reauthoring through performance, and then also a sense of the agency of the performer as well, um, and kind of brings a more dynamic relationship with the text, uh, the recipe text. Um, so I, yeah, so that's some things. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, fascinating thing. You write so beautifully about gender and the parallels between performance of gender and roles and the performance, the, the, the quite literal performance of of chef, of cook, of, of oh, yeah. following a recipe, um, as well as more kind of culturally ingrained notions of performative yeah. gestures like cooking. And thinking about it, another way I wanted to refuse the pressure to always be being glad um, of cooking was to write about you know not enjoying cooking hating cooking not cooking um, experiencing periods of fatigue where i'm just sitting on the sofa uh eating frozen pizza for, for many days to refuse uh, the uh, the the ideal body or the kind of pleasing body that goes with the pleasing text the kind of total inhabitation of that kind of gendered role um, this thinking about place as well, like the sofa is a really important place in the book. I, like I begin on the sofa and I go back to the sofa at various other points. Um, but um, if you go towards constraint and gender as well, um, there can be ways when you, in a domestic situation, often when you feel like you, you end up somehow sleepwalking into roles that you haven't consciously thought about from maybe previous generations of parents or something like that and you, you know, why was I feeling this deep urgency to control every social situation by cooking for people to the extent of like deep anxiety and sort of um, megalomania in some, in some senses which now I, and allowing other people in and, and seeding that desire to 
control over food cooking for other people, which is obviously care, but it's also control. Right. And um, letting other people see that I'm also vulnerable as well was a long-winded process. Um, and this something my friend said, which is like, oh, I can't find it, but anyway, it was like, the food's nice and everything, but I've come to see you, and let's just have some chips. And that was like quite hard to hear, anyway. But it's so funny because it shows also how those the ideas of those roles can trap us. Because mm. I I really don't cook, and it's partly because part of my early feminism was to reject yeah. it because I saw it as something that trapped women in the kitchen. I eat chips for dinner regularly and biscuits for breakfast. That's a great title, chips for dinner and biscuits for breakfast. But you know, now I find myself an adult woman lacking this skill that I wish I had developed more. And I love to cook for other people to care for them. And it tends to be fairly basic. I do, I make quite a decent omelette, but you know, well, that's a fine skill. <laughs> it is a fine skill. But I found reading your book, the first time I read it, it really, it kind of woke me up to this idea that, that actually that, that rejection is also a trap and it's not authentic. And actually I, I love food. I love eating delicious food. I, I love eating other people's food. I love, I love feeding the body in that way. But I had somehow rejected it. That's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a necessary statement to push it away because of the roles handed down to me, because the body I happened to be born inside. Like, it's such bullshit. And we did grow up in a political moment, I think we're a similar age, I don't know, uh, you know Blairism and like yeah. everyone just has to be an office worker and be professional yeah. and leave the, the domestic space and like sex in the city and using oven for storage, um, etc. Yeah. And like therein lies liberation. Yeah, and actually, the thing <laughs> yeah. is, like, if you find yourself falling into addiction, addiction is a, is a brilliant way to reject everything. But, at the cost of yourself and at the cost of your of your, of your bodily and spiritual integrity. But it, it can be such a powerful experience of political rejection and that was something that was in the experience of it for me, which is complicated. And also gender rejection. Like a drunk yeah. woman, yeah. it's quite a powerful thing. Yeah, you write, you write beautifully, I was, I was thinking about this as you were speaking there, you write beautifully about the, the rejection of, you know, I'm not your little woman that can be controlled or, you know, as and needs to politely set my drink kind of thing, that you can be in control of the whiskey that you're, that you're holding, you know. And I was <laughs> that, you know, I was a political monster, so. Well, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, the contradictions that that rejection have, have, have brought you and, and that you've written about. And also, Rebecca, the, the, you've, even the writing of this book, there's a, a chapter in there where you mentioned, you know, when I tell people that I'm writing a book about cooking, they say, oh, lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Cooking is lovely, and you kind of you, you really challenge that. Yeah, it felt important to do that, mm. and yeah, I do that. Also, if you're talking about Odyssey translation, um, uh, actually, no, that, I'm not going to go into that now. Well, we can go into that. My next question was going to be about influences and sources, references. Both of you include a plethora of. Artistic references, theoretical references, you've mentioned Sarah Ahmed, you've mentioned The Odyssey, you have Ocean Bong, Louise Bourgeois in, in your writing. Um, you both also dive into psychoanalysis and uh, psycho psychological research. We have Winnicott, Jung, Freud. Um, I wonder, I'm just going to open the 
the conversation up to an opportunity to speak about influences in these different areas that range so broadly from art and culture to academic influences, how that relates to your sense of the self and the story that you're telling, um, and also just why it's important to you to kind of draw upon those references in your work. You can start with the Odyssey if you want, or <laughs> we don't have to go further into it. I mean, a, a thousand attempts at a recipe is quite an odyssey in itself, right? Yeah, I guess I just realised that the time period I was writing about was a decade, and that's the same length as Odyssey. And thinking about how many encounters you have with people in kitchens, and all of the things that, you know, what is, Odysseus goes around the place, you know, he has encounters with people, these people impart lessons to him about living and the human condition, and also how to, I don't know, navigate between a rock and a hard place, uh, or, you know, monsters, etc. <clears throat> anyway, and why not think about the scale of what we learned through 10 years of encounters in a kitchen, with, in different kitchens with different people. On that scale, I wanted to sort of, yeah, I wanted to challenge myself and just culture in general to think about, to, to consider those encounters on the level that we might, they might not stay sort of trapped in the kitchen, those lessons, uh, but to, to elevate, you know, that epic, people look to epic to sort of think about broad lessons about human condition and culture and philosophy and politics and being, so um, one of the texts I spent a lot of time with in my twenties was uh, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment, in which they use the uh, Odyssey as an allegory for the development of the human subject post the Enlightenment to a, to a point in which the effectively the Holocaust happened. Um, but the negation of the body, the negation of, of sensuality, the privileging of logocentrism and language above all else, the separation of language and the world, anyway. But what I'm saying is that they're, they're using the Odyssey to do these big, these big, this big historical philosophical thinking and I wanted to think, well, what can we, what can we do that with the thinking that happens in the kitchen as well? So, and I didn't initially, I guess I also could have gained a sense of my own sort of borderline heroism, no, I don't mean that, but <laughs> um, that I was on an epic myself as I wrote the book because it was quite an intense experience. Um, and so that the Odyssey references grew, I suppose, as, as the book went on. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of references. Um, well, yeah. Um, some of them were, it's a mixture of stuff that preceded the writing of the book, such as you know, the stuff I've been studying for the PhD, because I finished my PhD in 2016, so that goes back a while. Then I also allowed chance into the writing process. So some of the chapters I knew were conversations I wanted to have about certain things, but I hadn't necessarily found the right object around which to have that conversation. Um, I mean, I was always searching for it. So it's, it's another central reference is um, a Winnicott writing about recipes and sausages, which for those who aren't familiar, Winnicott wrote about recipes and sausages. Um, and that was, some, that was a tweet someone screenshotted on Twitter, a page of this writing that Winnicott did about recipes, and I was like, great, I'm gonna have a fight with Winnicott. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so some of them were long-held references, and some of them were ones I stumbled across. But I was, I was sort of looking for it, I suppose. So it was, it, yeah. So things resonate with you when you're 
searching for them. They, they come to you when you're yeah, it's into very it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and you have the diagram in this book oh. of the <laughs> of the sausage making experience, which I wanted to to mention to you because it's fantastic. It's just so conceptual and interesting the way that you try to kind of translate this experience of the sausage making into you know what is going on in the periphery, what is going on. In, internally for me, what am I actually physically doing? I wanted um, to, yeah, I wanted to represent the intersubjective chaos of cooking sausages in a diagram, so I drew lots of triangles. But, um, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that, that's, I suppose, an example of where I feel you both have used references to quite literally kind of draw into your own experience, draw into your own understanding of your own experience, and to produce from it essentially, you then relate it to writing and you craft something new from it. Um, Simone Bay as well being a, a, a big influence in your, in your text. Yeah, Simone Bay and Louise Bourgeois are kind of the um, angsty godmothers of my book, <laughs> of my life maybe. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah the, the references, I think similarly to you Rebecca, I was, I did, uh, I was doing a PhD for the first few chapters of the time that the book is about. So a lot of my research came to that, but also, you know, I was writing my PhD was about hysteria in a way, and, um, you know, academics like to think that they're very distant from their work, but of course, an academic is going to solve the key problem of their psyche, I think, most of the time, whether they're writing about rocks or trees <laughs> or hysteria. And, um, of course, my thesis subject was a, an attempt to cure myself before I realized that I needed to, to do anything. Um, so it worked its way into the text and there's some references to his dear Louis Bourgeois was a, a figure I was writing about my academic work, um, as was Pedro Modova, who works his way in, and a few of the others. But then there were also some things that were just like jokes to myself. Like I found um, I found the experience of being inside academia very humorless and I thought that was a terrible shame. So I decided that any of the um, male theorists and critics and philosophers that I wrote about I would describe as if the Daily Mail were describing them. <laughs> so they all are written about in the context of their luscious curly hair or their, you know, grandfatherly smile or whatever. Because one of the points I wanted to make in the book was that, you know, women are known by their bodies before their minds. And actually, part of bringing in lots of references to this book, whether they're sort of intellectually respected references or not, because Jung, as I was told when I was doing my masters, is not an intellectually respected mind these days. But um it was also partly to reclaim the idea that, that writing about the self as a woman, writing about recovery, which is often people are very sneering about the idea of self-help, which I think is such a shame because why wouldn't you want to help yourself, right? And, and self-help literature can be um, something that people are very snobby about, that I was very snobby about. I love how you have by and the NEA men are next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, they're both talking about related things, but in different kind of uh, frameworks. The void. Yeah, yeah the void, exactly. exactly. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that we live in a, in a particular culture that is very um, sneering about certain things because it's, it's kind of the return of the repressed, right? Like everybody is, everybody is needing to recover from something at some point. And I think there's a sort of cultural fear of that. Um, and I also think there's a, I don't know, a tendency to minimize these things. Um, and, and so it was, it was a way of sort of thumbing my nose at that a little bit. And then also, you know, my head was full of voices, and I, when I 
first concert with literally one tongue, um, but also the voices of other writers and thinkers. And, and I wanted to create, a, I guess, a psychological portrait in a way as well. So it was important that it was very popular. And then towards the end of the book, the later chapters, which, um, well, I'm 10 years now, so but um, seven years-ish when I was writing it. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, decades and long time has been inside my own brain. Um, but um, it was uh, then I was looking to other writers for for different things. I was looking to them for comfort, as my father was becoming very ill when he died. But also then there were some other writers who come in, like John Burge, who became very important between me and my father, when he was in the nursing home during the pandemic, and I couldn't be with him physically. Um, and he by then almost completely lost the power of speech, or it was very difficult for him to speak. And so we found these kind of rituals where I would find a way to speak to him on the phone for a long time without him needing to respond. And sometimes that was just describing what I could see, and sometimes it was reading things to him. And um, the strange thing happens when, you know, my father, my father was an adult man with a big mind and, and a strong intellect, and then of course Alzheimer's rendered him much more like a child, but not a child, right? And people often treat the elderly as though they have returned to childhood, and the emphasis is to make children's stories and things like that. And so I sort of tried that. I remember reading Mathis and Montemagne, but he was completely nonplussed. <laughs> and so I read him John Berger instead, and I read him this beautiful little text called The Red Tender of the Oh my god, that's one of my favourite books. Which ever. I happen to know you love, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's, it's in the book, it's referenced in the book. Um, and and we have this kind of very powerful experience because that piece, if you don't know it, that version is about an uncle, a favorite uncle of his who died, and it's a way of writing the uncle back into presence, and it's a way of kind of creating a, a more supernatural space but grounded in Bologna, a very real place. And it's about grief, and it's about love, and it's about loss. And there I was reading it to my father, who was close to death, and um, and at the end of it, having really not been able to say very much, he just said, "Superb." Which is so not a child's word, do you know what I mean? Like it was like this like reminder of the fullness of this human being and this man who's far from me. And I, so that's another reason why it's all there because I think also that like, you know, this is a personal story about my experience, but the texts that are in it will mean a huge amount to readers in their own context and in their own ways. And also my favourite, I mean this is just a kind of something, but my favourite kind of writing is generous writing. I love writing and using other writing. So I wanted to give the reader that as well, you know, a, a, a generous experience of, of reading because also, you know, you are giving someone a self. So I wanted to give them other selves as well in case they weren't that interested in the self I was giving them. <laughs> that exactly links with what I was going to ask next about memoir, about life writing, about what memoir actually represents to both of you, what the term kind of represents to both of you, that giving, that generosity, that sharing, particularly when it's aligned with food writing or, you know, um, criticism or art, art history. Is it important for you to evolve what memoir means to you as writers in order to articulate your own experience effectively, would you say? Or what generally do you feel about the, the term memoir? I mean, my publisher tried really hard to get me to put memoir in the subtitle, um, and okay. I declined. Um, yeah, we could pitch it, it's much better. <laughs> yeah, and it's not about me, really, the book. Like, I use, you know, I'm writing, I guess, in that feminist way, you know, using the body to do thinking and treating the information 
encountered through the body um, as serious research material to thinking about things and thinking, also thinking about feelings. Um, and I'm using it to do thinking with, I suppose. Um, so the end point of the book is not to find out about me as a person at all. And, and everyone who's not me in the book is anonymous. Everyone who's not me in the book is just called you. That's also because I want to, there's various reasons. One, I didn't want people to feel surveilled in their lives, you know, writing non-fiction. Two, I didn't want hierarch heteronormative hierarchies of relation to kind of cloud people's uh, perception of, of food. Um, I want to be intimacy and the erotics and the complexity of those encounters to kind of come through without them being read through the lens of quote-unquote family or whatever, you know, other kind of frameworks. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I, I guess I treat the, the I, the, not the I, sorry, the I, as, as, a, as a space for thinking and of research and, um, and I gained confidence as I went on in, in doing that. And you can see that as the book continues, I think. Because the first half of the book, some of the first half of the book, some of those sentences, I've, I've rewritten over a hundred times. And it's very kind of, and I become very, I'm a, I was very controlling and obsessive about it. And then from, from the Winnicott chapter, almost I write by hand, um, because I became very attached to the idea of um, writing as mark making and accepting the kind of physicality of, of writing and also the body speaking through the physical act of writing, um, also not having the kind of panopticon feeling of a computer where things might be popping up or whatever, um, or that even if you've got them muted, the sense that they might do because they, you're sort of trained to expect that. Um, and I, yeah, and I allowed, I guess, and I, and I got more confident about thinking about that as important information as for speaking about cooking, so like allowing fatigue into, like allowing my fatigue into the text and things like that. Um, which again, I guess you find out when I get fatigued, but it's not about that finding that out, that revelation as such, it's more about um, trying to give a more complex picture of, of what cooking is and how that operates. Um, I can't remember if I've answered all your question. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating because I love, it links to what I was saying to you beforehand, the, the, the idea of repetition of an act. Yeah. The, the word repetition in receipts, you know, evidence of, in recipe, in, yeah. in, in the recipe, yeah. the idea of um, almost writing this receipt of life. It's like this kind of recipe for the experience of, of what you've lived through. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned that, that the, the parallels in the words and the root of the words yeah. in small fires. Yeah, I guess thinking about memoir as a form of reception is interesting. Mm. Like, yeah, because I'm thinking now of classical reception. Anyway, mm. but I think I'll, I'll, I'll take a jump in this because I feel like I'm going rambling in my own mind. I think it's a very, uh, it's a deceptively rapacious term. I think all writing is memoir. Mm -hmm. I think all writing is, is self, from self, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like it's a category that the market needed. 
and required. Um, talking about recovery without grounding it in self and experience isn't very interesting because you're making a generalised sort of thing about something that is personal. Um, and I think I think the two kind of core experiences in, in my book, recovery and, and Alzheimer's, they're both things that have like enormous archetypal um, parts and experiences built into them and also they're extremely personal. So one of the things that Young makes his way into this and the archetype is because I was interested in thinking about the archetype of the addict. What is the archetype of the addict? We all have an idea of what an addict is and what it means to live in addiction, but um, also the way that addiction actually manifests in individual's life is very different person to person, it's different from substance to substance. It's also culturally different, right? Like there are more acceptable addictions and less acceptable addictions. There are addictions that kill you very directly and there are some that don't kill you at all but can still fuck up your life. Um, you know, like I think of the way that like the so-called positive addictions manifest, like people are addicted to work, people are addicted to exercise. These are things that like the culture supports as good. But ultimately if the way you are related to these processes is addictive, then it's eroding itself the way that an addiction to alcohol does, or an addiction to drugs or anything that might be also harming your body in a very direct way. Um, yeah, what you're talking about on the complexity and, and it uh, reminds me of yeah, another kind of uh, sort of parallel is that cooking doesn't happen on the level of language. So the recipe text is completely different from what cooking is. Because that the chaos of subjectivity and living and desire and appetites and people's emotions come into the frame. Like a book about recovery that as I think one of the great strengths of using or writing from life is that life many contradictory things are true at the same time in a life. And when one gets into the habit of theorizing and you're detached from that living, you it you can tidy away the complexity and tidy away the contradictions that are more true. Right. And, and that it's useful to know about. It's useful if you're okay. approaching these things as a reader. Yeah. You know, like for me, as someone who is not, uh, doesn't really cook that much, like to read someone who cooks all the time, writing about sometimes the cooking not working out or not wanting to, is important. Mm. And I think the same with recovery. Yeah. Like, you can think about recovery texts, particularly the text that they use in 12-step recovery, which I did for a while and don't do anymore, um, as a recipe. They make it sound very simple in some respects. They acknowledge that it's difficult, but they make it sound very simple. And the whole thing you were talking about, about gladness, we go to this difficult work gladly. You don't go to recovery gladly. <laughs> you go kicking and screaming for the most part, and it's hard, and sometimes it's boring, and sometimes your commitment to it wavers. And, Talking about that in a theoretical way doesn't really land, whereas if you embody it in a life, then I think it makes a lot more sense. And 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 similarly, writing about about grief, um, grief is such a bodily experience, and the kind of grief that comes with with the slow loss of a person over many many years. My father was ill for uh, I think eight years after his diagnosis, but looking back, it was a kind of twelve-year-old unraveling. Um, again, to write about that. Sort of theoretically, it feels very disingenuous actually, and also it would feel like trying to speak to others in a, in a way that I don't think is, is appropriate to something like grief. Um, but the term memoir, I feel like it's also the way people come to it, the way people approach it, 
um, is changing and shifting because more and more books are being published that expand the sort of traditional. I mean, when I was a younger reader, I remember you know you just think of someone's memoirs, plural, as yeah. being some kind of like very celebrated person at the end of their life mm -hmm. writing witty anecdotes about people they met in the House of Parliament, some shit. It's it's a very different thing. So. Um, there's a yeah. different level of generosity to the, the intentions that you both have, I think, in the writing. It comes across at least. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both. I do have one more question for, for you both. Um, it shouldn't be a, a big one, but if anyone in the audience has a question you'd like to ask, please start hearing those, start thinking, pass the mic out. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to finish on as to debut authors of personal work, um, of which you can relate, I was wondering if you're happy to share, how has the experience been of sharing these personal stories with a readership? Has the experience been empowering for you? Has it felt vulnerable? Has it led you to any new interests that you know you, you kind of felt you didn't have before? Um, has it taught you anything? Significant. Um, is my work personal? I guess, yeah, I guess I say I work with my life. Um, but I, I don't know if it's personal in that way, but certainly it's been amazing seeing people have very strong reactions to the book at events. I've done quite a lot of events um, from people crying. Um, because they felt that uh, often work that they've been doing for decades, they've suddenly found a space in which they can think about it um, and then go on doing their own thinking about it in their own lives. So maybe someone who's been spent 30 years cooking in a domestic space but somehow hasn't had the space or opportunity to think about it, then they read the book and it somehow made a space for them. And that was very moving and cool and amazing to feel like that was made possible. Um, um, but so I, when you say it doesn't feel as personal then, does, yeah. that, does that limit the, the feeling of vulnerability then? That it, that it feels like less of I a... guess, you know, I, prote I, I, I protect myself, um, yeah. I guess. I, I, uh, it, I don't know. I guess it's vulnerable putting a work out there. I mean, it's deeply embarrassing to write a book, apparently, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Um, I was honestly mainly worried about my parents reading it. I'm not really sure if they have read it, but they acknowledge that it has been published. Um, <laughs> my mum's one comment about the audiobooks that should have been faster, that I should have read it faster. <laughs> she plays it at 1.25. That's why that option <laughs> It's like, usually it's like I get a comment about a piece of grammar or something. But um, I guess the worst didn't happen. You know, I feel like when you're waiting for a book to come out, you're fearing like the worst that will happen, whatever that is, like a moment of deep humiliation and something. Mm, dissatisfaction. And obviously, like you can self self uh, inflict that by reading good reads reviews of people who give you one stars if you want. And yeah, mm. and sometimes I do that, and I know it's quite naughty. <laughs> um, yeah, how about I mean I I yeah. I guess there are some embarrassing bits in the book, but no one's like made me feel embarrassed about them yet. Mm. Has it yeah. led you to anything? Um, yeah, I mean, p other people's thoughts and contributions. Also, because cooking is 
you know, a lot of people cook and everyone eats, otherwise they wouldn't be alive. So uh, other people saying stuff is at different junctures as they think about things differently. Um, so conversations, yeah, yeah, perspectives, maybe. totally. Thank yeah, you. Sorry, I, I, that's not so coherent. Anyway, thanks. No, yeah, that makes sense. It's good to hear. Oh, yeah, I feel, I feel like, yourself, yeah. Does it feel more personal? It's been, um, yeah, I mean, it's been on the whole a really, a really profound experience. And similarly to you, just the like um, meeting readers and finding out that it's meant a lot to them or that people have responded strongly to things. I think, you know, there, there's, I've been surprised actually by um, how many older men have responded very profoundly to it, which maybe it sounds naive on my part, but I sort of didn't think the works been marketed and everything, that it was for women and queers and young, you know, that actually I've met a lot of men who are the fathers of much younger daughters, and my father was much older than me, um, who, who it's spoken to um, for that reason, I think. And, and, and generally, actually, it's been a much more mixed readership than I was expecting. Um, because you know, a huge number of people have experience of either addiction or, um, or, or caring for particularly people with dementia. Um, and that's been amazing. I think the thing that has been a challenge actually has been holding space for the emotions of readers, um, which I've wanted to be able to do more, but the events have been um, plentiful and brilliant and it's, you can't kind of connect deeply with everybody. Um, but my instinct is to, because I want to, and because I enjoy you know, connecting with people. Um, but no, I was worried I would feel extremely vulnerable, and actually, I, I didn't feel that vulnerable. I think partly because I did all that work when I was writing it, mm. and you know, I think I was, as I think anyone who's working with the self in the text, you know, what you leave out is probably more important than what you put in, and you think kind of live in the process of writing about what you're going to share, or at least I did, and that set me up well for coping with what might follow. And also, I definitely, you know, the book is not you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the book really feels like it's not you, yeah, even yeah. more the more time goes on. Yeah, so true. I think of the voice in this book as the narrator. Mm-hmm. I don't think of it as myself. Yeah. And it's, it is a construction, right? So, yeah. No, but on the whole, it's been great. Yeah, very good. Similar, I had some surprises in terms of range of people. And, yeah. Yeah, which is delightful. Which is nice, really nice. Yeah. It's also genuinely just delightful that anybody reads it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they're out there hating it, it's still yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a delight. Y